0: Pontius Pontius, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know this Jesus, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this And with many others, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together Our great loving Heavenly Father, we thank
1: you as we are now journeying through the book of Acts, we see how your risen and ascended Son continues to guide and lead his church. And so that's what we ask this morning, that your Son through your Spirit would guide and lead us. Firstly guide and lead us to all understanding of this passage, that we might be convicted that we ourselves might be cut to the heart, filled with awe at what your Son has done. And then we pray, along with that, a must, that you would help us to grow as a church in understanding our role, our love, and our devotion to you and each other. So we ask, Father, that you'd bless us this morning, help me to speak clearly and faithfully from this passage as I ought, We ask all of these things for your glory and our joy together. In Jesus' name, Amen. They tried to start a church without God. For a while, it worked. Faith Hill, an editor at The Atlantic, wrote this perceptive piece in July of 2019. It begins by following Justina Wolford, a resident of New York City who had left church and God behind a decade before. But she missed church, the people, the songs, the stained glass windows, until she stumbled upon an article about something called Sunday Assembly. A community where people could gather together, sing songs, listen to speakers, chat over coffee and donuts. It was church without God. Speakers were scientists, academics, artists. They sang pop songs together, snapped their fingers to poetry. Walford loved it so much she became an organiser and put in long hours of volunteer time to put each service together. It lasted a couple of years until it fell apart there were just not enough people. If you didn't believe in God anymore, if that didn't compel you to gather with people, then brunch was just as good an option on Sunday mornings. There were strong disagreements about the purpose of their gatherings and they ran out of money. Apparently lapsed believers stopped believing in God and stopped giving financially. Now as I was reading this article during the week, I couldn't help feeling sad. You know, sad that she had walked away from Jesus. Sad that her godless church experiment failed so miserably and sad that in all of that, she didn't realize that when you reject God and the lordship of Jesus, you cannot have church. Godless church on paper sounds like a workable idea, but without God, it seems there is no way to sustain long-term gathering. So as, we re- as I was reading this article, it also got me thinking, what should church be like? And what is it that will keep us going long-term, for us to not only want to gather together, but to be devoted to gathering together? And we'll answer that as we, go through, as we journey through Acts chapter 2. First, let's set the scene again uh, for us as we go through the book of Acts. Today's passage, we finally now get into the action in the book of Acts. It's a passage neatly broken into four parts. First, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the disciples. Second, Peter gives a big sermon. And third, we see the right and appropriate response to Peter's main point of the sermon. Then in our final part, we'll see the gathering of God's people and what they looked like. And we'll see what kept them together and going. Now, all of this takes place in Jerusalem. It's the, it is the preaching of the gospel as Jesus intended back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is the journey that we are going through in the book of Acts. This is where the book of Acts is heading. It's going to start in Jerusalem and then it's going to push out into Judea and Samaria and then onto the ends of the earth. As we cover the first 12 chapters in this sermon series, uh, we're going to see the gospel keep advancing and, and the ascended Jesus moving his preachers and disciples from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And then if you read ahead from chapters 13 onwards, you'll see the focus moves to the lands outside of the Middle East. But again, remember from last week, the disciples had orders to go, but first they needed to wait. They had to wait for Jesus to send his spirit. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 1 of our passage with the disciples waiting. We're told it's the day of Pentecost, penta in Greek meaning 50. This is 50 days after the Passover and therefore 50 days after Jesus' death on the cross. Why this date? Pentecost was a Jewish festival celebrating the conclusion of a harvest and over the years it became connected to the celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Uh, The law giving moment was said to have happened 50 days after the first Passover in Egypt. And so for Jews the Pentecost became a symbolic time of completion and fulfillment in Israel's calendar. This explains why there are so many Jews from all different backgrounds in Jerusalem at the time. Jerusalem had a population of around 55,000 people on average, but during the festivals it could swell to up to 200,000 people or more. I've got this vision of Brisbane looking like that during the Olympics in 2032. We've got like, what, two, two and a half million people here, and I just cannot imagine what the roads are going to be like. So. It's the day of Pentecost. In verse 1, we read that the disciples were all together, 120 of them. And then in verse 2, a sudden sound floods in through the windows and reverberates against the walls. Verse 2, a sound like a mighty rushing wind filling the entire house where they were sitting. I've never been in a cyclone or typhoon before, and I'm glad to have not experienced it but I've heard that when the winds are at the highest, it can sound like a freight train speeding right past your open window. It is a roar that you can feel in your chest, but notice that it is a sound and not actual wind. And then something like fire in verse 3, as of fire, appeared. Like little tongues of fire resting on each of the 120 disciples present. The sound of wind and what looks like fire. What's going on? Wind and fire are often images the Old Testament uses to say that God is on the scene. So here again, God is doing something unique and that unique thing is filling every disciple with the Holy Spirit. This is really unique, what is happening here in, in this passage, unlike any other time in biblical history. And we'll see further why when we get to point 2a. Now, the obvious thing to say or the obvious thing to notice is about this: what is happening here is that as soon as the fire rests on them, as soon as the Holy Spirit fills them, we see in verse 4 that they began speaking in tongues. Now, the tongues here are specific, the languages of men, not some foreign angelic tongue, but a discernible language. You can see that there from verse 6. There are all these different Jews from different nations gathered together, and they get drawn to that same sound of the mighty rushing wind, wondering what's going on. Then all of a sudden, a bunch of Galileans are running around, speaking in languages that would have been unfamiliar to them, but were familiar to those standing and watching. So verse 9 and 11 gives us a big, long list of 15 different nations represented, all of them with different languages and alphabets. And each of them are hearing the disciples speaking to them about the mighty works of God. They are hearing the good news of the death and resurrection in their native tongue. Understand this miracle correctly. The miracle isn't so much a miracle of speaking, but a miracle of hearing and understanding for those with us who, are with, who have been with us for you know just only 2 weeks ago we heard that devastating news in Genesis 11 of a world with one language united together in rebellion against God then in judgment God confused their language and scattered them so they could not understand each other here in Acts chapter 2 we've got a reversal of that Now we've got all these different nations united together, still not quite understanding each other, but now these multiple languages are hearing the same message, united in hearing about God who has reconciled them to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up in the tongues themselves and miss the point of the tongues in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That here is the true miracle. This moment of hearing and understanding brings about different responses. Some are amazed and astonished in verse seven. It literally stops them in their tracks. I mean, who has ever seen or heard anything like this? Others are amazed and perplexed in verse 12. As much as they find it incredible, they're also going, huh, what's going on? I saw an Instagram story the other day of one of our Singaporean students here who had that experience in a foreign land, Melbourne wandering around the shops, surrounded by the foreign tongues of Aussie slang. And then all of a sudden, a familiar accent and tone, singlish. And not only that, but a childhood friend. Amazed, astonished, perplexed. These are all right and understandable responses. And yet among all of that, there is an all too predictable response as well in verse 13. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Even in the face of such miracles, they refuse to believe. And isn't that the truth sometimes? Sometimes it's not a miracle that people need for evidence. If you refuse to begin with openness, you will always find excuses to not believe. And so on the face of this mocking, Peter stands with the 11 apostles and speaks up with this massive crowd before him. He is about to launch into his very first sermon. Now, before we dive into the details of the sermon, take a moment to think for yourself, what sort of sermon would you give? Right? Especially if it was the first sermon this crowd would ever hear. The gospel has never been heard by this crowd and they are gathered together ready to listen to you. So what would you say? What would you speak about to try and attract and keep as many followers as possible? What topics would you cover and what topics would you shy away from? Good idea probably to shy away from politics, right? It's always a good idea to not talk about that and turn people off. Maybe you'd want to say something encouraging, inspiring even. Let people know that you're not a bad person, the message that you have can really change their lives for the better. Maybe you'd be tempted to avoid topics like sin and death and judgment. Topics that are maybe better for not so much for the first sermon, a bit too full on. Save that for sermon number three or four. What does Peter do? Well, he goes for it he not only mentions judgment uh, but he also he uses it as an opening illustration he also uses three relatively complex and long old testament quotes and doesn't give any application points at the end right in a few weeks time we've got jordan our ministry trainee who's going to be preaching so pray for him right we are going to be teaching him don't use really long complex quotes do apply the word. Peter is breaking every single rule. He wouldn't be a good MTSer. So let's break down this sermon bit by bit. I'm not going to explain every single detail. I do want to give a simple overview of these really complex parts. So you can see on the outline, I think this sermon breaks down into four neat points. Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, firstly. Joel was an Old Testament prophet whose little prophetic book is wedged among among, uh, other little prophetic books. Uh, In the Old Testament, he prophesied at some unknown time in Israel's life. Uh, But what was happening in that time was there were a couple of natural disasters, big disasters that hit the nation. And Joel saw those and he said to the people, You see those natural disasters? If you do not repent of your sins, bigger disaster is coming. And you can see that there in verse 20 of our passage, where the quote, quote from Joel culminates with this reference to the day of the Lord a great day of judgment. So again, right off the bat, Peter goes straight for the jugular straight to the day of judgment in his opening illustration. Now, the point of this quote isn't to say that judgment day is coming, so get yourself ready, right? Joel says something different. He says that in the days before that great day of judgment, God was going to do something extraordinary. He would pour out his Holy Spirit on everybody, and the result you can see in verse 17 of our passage that would be that people would prophesy, see visions, and dream dreams, which all leads to the natural question, what does it mean to prophesy, to see visions, and dream dreams? Now, throughout the sermon series, you're going to hear Ben and I drop uh, a few tips on how to read the Bible. Uh, the book of Acts has quite a few common errors when it comes to Bible reading and interpretation. So definitely ask us if you have more questions. But here's the tip for the day for you. When it comes to interpreting something in the Bible, it's always good to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Peter does that for us in a second when he references King David in the Psalms and then interprets them. So when it comes to prophesying, seeing visions and dreaming dreams, what does that mean? What does the Bible say on that? Well, put simply, you've got to go back to your Old Testament and see how it's used there. Throughout the Old Testament, to be given God's spirit, to prophesy, to have visions and dream dreams, was always a sign of special revelation from God. To receive some sort of revelation about his plans and purposes. But these revelations in the Old Testament were very few and far between. Think about Abraham, right that man in Genesis 12 that God personally picks and promises great things to. Abraham was given a great vision or dream once every 20 years or so. They're not very common in the Old Testament. Only specific individuals at particular times got these visions and dreams. So now you can see what Joel is promising here. See it again in verse 17 now everyone young old female servant free male female servant or free everyone was going to have access to god's spirit and god's revelation of himself this is what some commentators have said is the democratization of the spirit of god god would pour out his spirit on all people with everyone getting equal access and at that time God would usher in a new age in verse 21 Peter hits the crucial point in all of this so read it again with me verse 21 and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved all, all of this that is happening everything that you see is so that you can call on the name of the Lord and be saved saved from what saved from that great day of judgment coming soon and Jesus is the key. He is the Lord. In verse 19 to 20, Joel predicts signs and wonders before that great day of judgment. And Peter tells the crowd in verse 22 You saw Jesus perform mighty works and wonders and signs. Jesus is the one Joel was waiting for. Peter says to the crowd, You know this, you saw it. And you know what else? That Jesus who brought the signs and wonders before the day of judgment, he died. He was delivered up to the cross, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew it and God planned it. He planned planned the cross in advance. The cross was the place where forgiveness of sins is achieved. It's where reconciliation with God is achieved. It's where those who believe and trust what Jesus has done move from being under judgment to being received into God's own family. So before this day is finished, I want to ask you, if you know this, do you know that Jesus died for you? That the punishment you deserve has been taken away by Jesus on the cross? That the only way to be reconciled to God and welcomed as his child is through Jesus? Maybe some of us here need to make a call on that today. So before this day is out, get that question sorted. Peter says God planned the cross, but then he points the finger at the crowd as though his finger was stabbing their chests and he calls them out. Jesus died on the cross and you crucified and killed him. You, crowd, were part of that crowd 50 days earlier, calling for his blood. The people standing there, they knew this. You know what else? Jesus didn't stay dead. No, no, God raised him up. Verse 24, death could not hold him down. The cross was not enough to steal away his throne, for he is God. But you know what else? Jesus isn't just raised from the dead. No, there's even more. Well, he's like a brilliant salesman, isn't he? But wait, there's more. Verse 25 to 36, Peter then goes on to quote, Two of King David's Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 101. Now, there's some very complex thoughts woven here together, but let's distill it down again to the essence of what David is saying. First, very quickly, who is David and what do we need to know about him to get what is being said here? Right? David is, was the greatest king of Israel, no doubt about it. Every king who came after David would be kind of compared to David. He was the measuring stick in terms of character and closeness with God. David was also given massive, a massive promise from God that one day, one of David's descendants would reign as king forever. David, you will have a child, one of your children in your line, he will sit on the throne and reign and rule forever. And I'm sure on the scale of promises from God, from small to massive, I'm sure we can all agree that is a massive promise from God. So David here writes both of these psalms, Psalm 16, Psalm 101. But when you actually read those psalms on first passing, it actually sounds like David's talking about himself. But then you read it again and you realize, actually, that that can't be. It can't be that David is talking about himself. You see, in verse 25 to 28 of our passage, essentially it says, it seems to say that David would not die, that God would not let David die. And then Peter says, well, David did die. You can go visit his tomb if you want. I had to Google it, but you can pay money to go for a tour on what they believe is David's tomb. Right there, over in Israel. So clearly David wasn't talking about himself. So who was he talking about then? Peter interprets for us and tells us that David was speaking prophetically, speaking about the future Messiah, the future king who would not be abandoned to death. And that future Messiah again is Jesus, the one in verse 32 that we apostles are witnesses of. Remember that special role of the apostle, the office of apostle, someone who not only preaches the gospel, but someone who also saw the resurrected Jesus, who can personally testify to it, which is why every time I get friended by some apostle so-and-so from Africa usually, I decline I say, no, you are not an apostle. Apostles saw and can testify personally to the resurrected Jesus. And that's what Peter is doing. He's saying, Jesus has been raised and I and the other apostles saw it. And not only has he been raised, but he's also been promoted to God's right hand. And from there in heaven, at God's right hand he's pouring out the spirit that you are seeing and hearing for yourself it wasn't David who went to heaven to sit at God's right hand in verse 34 Peter quotes from Psalm 101 it says again that refers to Jesus all right if you've been a little bit lost come back here for a moment because in verse 36 Peter ties it all together the prophet Joel said the spirit would be poured out David says that God's king would not die but be raised and promoted to God's right hand and tying it all together in verse 36, Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus ties it all together. Jesus is the one who died, who rose to life, who fulfills God's word, who gets promoted to heaven as Lord. From his heavenly throne, he sends the spirit that you're now hearing. And so here is the key. Here's what changes everything. Know this with certainty, Peter says, that Jesus has been made Lord and Christ. Jesus has been made king of everything. He is the ruler. He is the one in charge and you crucified him know that what know that what we've seen we've seen Jesus raised know that he has sent the spirit at work today know that the old testament even points forward to this know that Jesus being lord and king over the universe means big changes it means that he is the judge and also the one who we have to come to for forgiveness Now, hearing all this, the crowd's response is stunning. Luke tells us in verse 37 that they were cut to the heart. The message was not only powerful, but it hit, and it hit really hard. It pierced all the way into their inner being. Cut to the heart carries this sense of being deeply and profoundly grieved at your own sin. They knew it. They saw Jesus. They yelled for his blood. And now here Peter was telling them, Peter was speaking miraculously in their own language, telling them about how that same man they saw crucified was now risen to life. It was the only explanation that made sense of what they were seeing and hearing before their eyes. Have you ever been this deeply grieved by sin? I heard a preacher on this passage recently say that if you haven't been this deeply grieved, then he wondered if you had been truly converted. And the more I thought about that, the more I think that preacher might be right. See, I think only when we are truly cut to the heart that we will begin to ask the right questions. I know people who, are, who know that they are sinners, who feel a weight of their sin, but their response is to feel guilty and then just try harder to stop sinning to please God. But that's not the right response. That is the response of trying to take your old self and with your own effort to try and just clean yourself up. And see how the crowd responds in verse 37, they ask the right question because they know they just cannot simply clean up their own act. Verse 37, they ask brothers, what shall we do? They recognize that they are at a dead end. Without some guidance and help, they've got nowhere to go. So Peter tells them in verse 38 what to do. And though it sounds a little bit like try hard to stop sinning and please God, it couldn't actually be more different. He tells them to repent and to be baptized to repent means to recognize our sins and to turn away from them. Those, who, those sins which caused them to be deeply grieved, cut to the heart, they needed to recognize them and to turn away from them. They saw that they were crucified, Jesus. But they were also to turn to Jesus, the one they crucified, and to be baptized. Now, Peter isn't saying only once you get dunked under the water, then you'll be forgiven and saved. No. Baptism is an outward sign of what has already happened internally. To be baptized is to publicly announce that you are a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, to say to the world that your sins have been forgiven, and to call on Jesus as your Lord. And in doing so, you receive the Holy Spirit as well. Now quickly note, this promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit is wonderfully for everyone. Peter says it's even for little children. The promise of forgiveness of sins is available even to little ones. How gracious and wonderful and marvelous is that? In a world in the first century that devalued children to just mere property, Peter says that these grand promises of God are available to them as well. Now, as I said, repenting and being baptized sounds like just try harder to stop sinning so that you'll please God, but the passage in Acts goes on. It shows us what repentance and faith looks like. It gives us a a picture of the Christian life, of where true and proper grief for sin will lead. Notice that Luke first tells us in verse 40 that with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort him. So here's some encouragement for those who are taking notes here. The sermon that we've just read are actually just the sermon notes from Luke. We're just getting the key points. Now, and not only do we get it, but we also, so do a large number of people, they receive this word and they are baptized. They heard Peter, they believe, they responded in faith and trust. They live wholeheartedly with Jesus as their Lord. How many? At the end of verse 41, 3,000 of them. And at the start of Peter's sermon, I asked what sort of sermon you would preach to get the crowd's attention, to get them to respond positively. And here it is. A heavy sermon filled with complex Old Testament references with the Judgment Day as an opening illustration. But in the end, it all pointed to Jesus, the one who forgives them and saves them. And so 3,000 people respond in faith, the first century equivalent of going viral. Have you done that? Have you joined with the 3,000 to be saved? I want to do it today. And so, with the gospel preached, with Jesus as the focus, Luke 10 then gives us in our final verses a, a clear picture of what the early church then looked like. If Jesus is Lord and his people respond properly, then this is what they look like. And there are some big encouragements here, but also some big challenges. So test yourself. Ask yourself if... What you see matches your own life. And if it doesn't, what actually does that say about your faith at the heart? If Jesus dies for the forgiveness of our sins and has been raised to life and is seated on high as Lord of all, then this is what his repentant followers look like. First, they are devoted. Verse 42 Devotion wraps up their entire being. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They hungered to learn and to grow in their understanding. They eagerly learned and were taught. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to being together, to encourage each other with what they were learning, to using God's word to build and lift each other up. Now, fellowship is more than just friendship and hanging out. It's the deep desire to see each other become more like Christ and to find ways to, that we might speak and serve each other to that end. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which I don't think refers to communion and the Lord's Supper. The, that terminology of breaking bread referring and linking it to the Lord's Supper actually only came about in about the second, middle of the second century. To break bread was actually more commonly about sharing meals together. They loved sharing meals with each other. And they were devoted, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Where before they were distant, they, they thought they knew God. Now through Jesus, they could approach God as their heavenly father. Jesus was now their brother And now, so they could gather together to come to God and present their requests and needs together. They loved to gather to pray together. Prayer is by nature the expression of our deepest dependence on God. And just like the disciples did in chapter 1, these new disciples devoted themselves to prayer. And in all this activity and learning, it leads to big things in their hearts. Have a look at verse 43. We read that, Awe came upon every soul. Or is that feeling of growing reverential respect mixed with wonder and fear? This is where proper grief for our sins should lead us. It shouldn't lead to guilt alone. It should lead us to the one who forgives, to Jesus and to awe and amazement at what Jesus has done for his people and continues to do in his people. A preacher earlier mentioned, I mentioned earlier, said that if you have not truly grieved your sin, then it questions if you have been truly converted. And here I will say, if you have not experienced awe of Jesus in your life, if it's not an ongoing experience, I don't know if you have been converted at all. Hearing the gospel Encountering Jesus through his word and in the life of his people, that must have a moving effect in your heart. Whether you're a feeler or a thinker type of person, there should be the sense that Jesus is massive, that he is good, and we should be left floored. How do we grow that awe? we feel like it's kind of pottering along, how do we grow it? Let's do what the early church was doing. You be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Hunger and learn to grow. You be devoted to fellowship together with other believers so that they can grow you and encourage you and grow your heart and your awe. Share meals together regularly. That's good. Pray together. It's how we grow our ore. And then finally in verse, oh, well not finally, in verse 45, 44 to 45, we then read that the disciples had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and giving to the needy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they sold everything up they had because they obviously had houses to meet in and to share meals together. And this is not some communist village. Uh, this is the church really looking after each other with the things that they possessed. I know that this happens a lot in our Christian circles. I mean, if you go away for a holiday or a period of time, we often ask people to stay at our homes, enjoy my house while I'm away. I know that happens on the outside as well, but it just seems so very common for Christians to do things like this. I don't know if you noticed the other week, uh, but when the Bartleets were here sharing about their missions, uh, I noticed that they drove in and parked at our church and they were driving an expensive BMW. Missionaries to Thailand, driving a BMW. Obviously on loan from another church member, confirm that with them, but it's this thing that Christians do. We share with each other. And in our final verse, we read that they were together, day by day, breaking bread in their homes, receiving food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. It's a picture of joy, of gladness, and of thankfulness. If God has been so kind to us and generous to us in Jesus, then that overflows in generosity with each other. It's a picture of the gospel at work, a picture of church at its best. Does that look like our church? Do you see that at work? And are you a part of it? Let me take a minute, a moment to address those watching on the live stream. Uh, at home at this moment. When I think about the live stream, as I've been thinking about a lot lately, look, there are some valid reasons why you might be at home or choosing to be at home uh, to watch this service rather than gathering with us. Uh, maybe you're sick yourself, and that's a valid reason to be watching in. Maybe there are some who still have lingering fears about coming back. And if that's you, then it would be good for your pastors to sit down with you and and to walk you through that and to talk you through that because we don't want you to live in fear forever. But let me address those who are watching this live stream mostly out of convenience. The live stream gives you a sense of being connected to church because you get to hear the sermons. You get to sing along with us. Every now and then there's a wide angle. You get to see the church in action. But at the end of this passage here in Acts chapter 2, can you see that this picture of Acts cannot be done online by yourself? You can't fellowship with others. You can't pray with others. You can't be together and build each other up if you're alone watching me and this through a screen. You can't proclaim Jesus as Lord by yourself. So take up this challenge to return here in person and to live out this picture of Acts. If Jesus is Lord, then do it with us together. Now, my duty as a pastor isn't just simply to challenge us all the time, but also to give thanks for how God has been at work among us. And so let me share a few points of thanksgiving as well. Uh, Many of our groups have been going through the Bible study series, Six Steps to Loving Your Church. It's not the first time most of our groups have done it. Some of us, it's the third or fourth time that we're doing it. Uh, And in looking at the material again, I was just really thankful for how God has been working in our church. I think we are a church that is devoted to the teaching of God's Word and predominantly to fellowshipping together. I think we are growing better at praying for each other. I really love that we spend so much time now together as a church at the end of our service. We don't just up and leave, but we spend time discussing the questions with each other and praying for each other. I love that when I look around this room, I don't see a lot of people in their familiar seats, which means that you've come in, you've sat in a different place, you are going to be meeting someone different and speaking with them and getting to know them and praying for them. I really think we're growing better at doing all of this, and I can see people being generous with their possessions with one another. Now I think we can keep growing in these things, we're not perfect, so don't rest on that. We are getting better, so let's keep putting these things into practice. Justina Wolford had left God and the Bible behind years earlier, but she still wanted the community she had with the church. But a community that gathers regularly to fellowship, to enjoy meals together, to share what they have and look after each other, to encourage and build each other up, that does not work without the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. It doesn't happen if people gathering have not been cut to the heart. It doesn't happen if people gathering are not being filled with awe and amazement at the gospel of Jesus. And so... As we reflect on our church gathering, let's keep focusing together on the one who has been raised and lifted up. For he is the key ingredient that will make this last. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you again that this word is present for us. That this sermon from Peter, this first sermon to the church was received in profound ways. So help us hearing it to, be, uh, to, to receive it profoundly as well. We saw the crowd cut to the heart. We saw them responding with love and devotion to each other. Anything less is to fail to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. So as we look at our own church life, may we be encouraged by the ways that we are growing. May we be challenged to keep growing. So, Father, do this great work in our church and through your word. For we ask this for the glory of our ascended Lord Jesus and for our joy. Amen.